Hi, this is Ed Sharlack, writer of television shows for 45 years and counting. And uh, you're listening to Then Is Now podcast. Rise and shine, my sinners. When Father Evil starts his day, he gets a little deadly. Deadly Grounds Coffee has the richest, smoothest flavor you'll find anywhere. It's sinfully delicious. Once you go deadly, you never go back. Order yours at getdeadly.com. Coffee's so good, it's scary. Hi, this is Rigor, host of Then Is Now podcast and The East Meets the West. I just wanted to say thank you to all of our Patreon subscribers. We appreciate your support as we grow the audience for our shows. You could find our links to our Patreon page as well as our Tee Public page at havenpodcasts.com. With Patreon, you'll get a lot of exclusive stuff, including our monthly pop culture newsletter, cool gifts, discounts for Tee Public, and our special exclusive show, Then Is Now Filmmakers Series, in which we interview directors, producers, writers, composers, special effects guys, basically anybody who works behind the scenes in film and television and get their insights into the process of creating films and TV shows. Also at our Tee Public page, you'll find cool merch that you can get or even give to others as gifts. You can find those links at our website, or you can go directly to tpublic.com slash stores slash Haven Podcasts and patreon.com slash then is now podcast. Enjoy. What kind of a sick school is this? Things are afoot at the Circle K. You're gonna need a bigger boat. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. You got spunk. I hate spunk. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. Oh, righty then. How you doing? Back off, man. I'm a scientist. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Say hello to my little friend. I love to celebrate from in the morning. What are you people? On dope? Stop whining. I got a crap on deck that can choke a donkey. Who is your daddy? I'm sorry, but all questions must be submitted in writing. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Can I do that? I'll be back. A day no man! Show me the money! Don't! Up your nose when you love the home. A what? I'm sailing! I'm sailing! You want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it. Pull it down. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Here's looking at you, kid. We got no food. We got no jobs. Our pets' heads are falling off. Go to the coast. We get together. Have a few laughs. Hear that, Elizabeth? I'm coming to join you, honey. I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. I love it when a plan comes together. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. We're on a mission from God. Hello. 
Hello and welcome to another amazing episode of Then Is Now Podcast, the show in which we discuss pop culture of the past and how it relates today, as well as helping you, the listener, introduce young folk to all the cool stuff that they missed out on. I am your host, Rigor, and with me again is my co-host, filmmaker Chris Esper. What's new, Chris? Um, nothing really. Could just kind of uh, the same old. Um, have a few different projects coming up, plus uh, work. So yeah, it's been a pretty exciting time. How about yourself? Awesome. Yeah, yeah, things have been good. It's kind of same old, bouncing between work and trying to get the show going. And, you know, that's um, that's just how life is. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Although I have been uh, introducing my son, my uh, grandson, who's five, to some cool old stuff, which I will get into in a little bit. But I, first, I wanted to remind people about our restructured Patreon page. So please uh, go to havenpodcasts.com and click on the Patreon link where, for the price of a cup of coffee, you can help support the show. And you'll also have access to our exclusive filmmaker series that's only on Patreon. That's right. That's right. It's it's a great show. We had fun. We've got a lot of fun guests coming up on it. But first off, I do want to once again offer an apology uh, for our to our listeners for our episodes taking so long to post. We, I, we appreciate you guys for being patient. You know, as we just said, you know, Chris and I are juggling crazy work schedules and doing a lot of behind the scenes work that's been taking up our time. And, you know, so sometimes things have to get bumped in a while. In fact, I just posted as of this recording, I just posted the um, Creature from the Black Lagoon episode that we did. But what went along with that was not only was I just e- I editing like three sources, but also I went and did a shit ton of research on newspaper ads and articles about all three movies from when they were released. So if you check our website, and I'll put it... Uh, it's in the show notes of the Creature episode. Um, uh, we created a Flickr gallery. Actually, three Flickr galleries, one for each movie. And you can go and check those um, newspaper clippings out. They're really fun. So getting back to what I was saying before about older films, Chris, are you a Star Wars fan? I'm a big Star Wars fan, yeah. Okay. I got into a conversation with a friend of mine on Facebook earlier today, and... It was about the fact that I showed my grandson the original three movies, Star Wars, Empire, and Jedi. Then we watched The Mandalorian and Book of Boba Fett. But I refused to show him the prequel trilogy. And uh, my friend was like, well, you should give them another look. And I basically said, well, only if George Lucas came to my house and personally apologized to me. <laughs> so uh, I don't want to offend you. Do you. Are you a fan of the prequels? I am not. Uh, I and I'm and I have no apologies about that. It's not. It's not a good, not not a good series of movies. Unfortunately, thank Christ. No, they're not good. <laughs> now, I mean, okay. So let me let, let me step back a little bit. I like I like Revenge of the Sith uh, quite a bit. Of the three, that one is the best one. There's actually a good amount of story going on, and I like the transition and all that. So the transition for Anakin Skywalker. So I like that because it gets us a step closer to what we know and love, but, right. f- but Phantom Menace and um, Attack of the Clones, not a fan at all. No, no. And it's like, for me, we don't have to get too deep into it because we could do a whole show on it, but yeah. Um, well, first of all, I'm going to say the, the sequels, the three sequels, I didn't have a huge problem with them. I thought there was like sort of a retread, but I've only seen them each once. So I don't really, I haven't really dived deep into them, but the prequels yeah. I've seen a couple of times and like the first one, Phantom Anus. I mean, Phantom Menace. You, <laughs> <laughs> I like gotta, that. I got, I got to start using that. That's yeah, there great. You go. Oh, the Phantom Anus. It, there's no, there's no suspense. 
Anakin's a little kid. First of all, he's an annoying, whiny little kid who grows into yeah. an annoying, whiny teenager. But he's in this pod race, and he could get killed. Oh, do you think Anakin's going to die? Well, no, he goes on to become Darth Vader. <laughs> <laughs> so there's no yeah. tension. Yeah, no, that's true. That That's one of the dangerous things about doing a prequel is that everything you know that's going to happen is already predetermined, so it, it, it tends to lack suspense. But that being said, that's not even really the big problem with the movie. The big problem with the movie is the writing. Yes. Uh, and, I, and I hate to say that because, you know, I love George Lucas. I mean... Without him, there is no Star Wars. So I don't want to sound like you know, like a, a whining fanboy. That's like, oh yeah, you know, like like there's, like you see Star Wars fans online all the time that always say, oh George Lucas raped, uh, raped my childhood. It's like, come on, you know, it's like he made a movie. You know, he didn't make, he made a bad movie. Move on. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny, but it's like, and then the end of that movie, it's a big war between Jar Jars and robots. Who gives a flying fuck? <laughs> I yeah. really don't care. Yeah. 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 No, it's... Uh, I don't know. I mean, but I agree with you on the sequel uh, trilogy as well. I mean, I didn't hate them. I liked them. My only problem with it was I agree that it's a retread. When I saw Force Awakens in the theater, I absolutely loved it. I was so excited. I was in love with it. I saw it the second time around. Didn't quite have the same impact because... I started to see like the little faults in it, such as not just that it was a retread, but a lot of it just felt like fan service. I hate to say, yeah, uh, like recalling and like you know a lot of these late sequels that sort of come in because they're trying to cash in on nostalgia. They all do it. Ghostbusters Afterlife did it. I mean, they all do it, right? Uh, but I, but I feel like Disney has been like milking it for what it's worth so much so that now it's starting to get tiring seeing advertisements that a new Star Wars is coming because, like, what made the original movie so special is that they were spaced out, like, every three years, and then when you got the prequel trilogy, it was, like, twenty, like 15 years later or so, 16 years later, right. and, you're like, and you're like, wow, it was like, that was a big event. Now, that feeling is gone. Yeah. And, you know, my friend pointed out that when he made Phantom Menace, it was aimed specifically towards modern-day kids. Because yeah. he showed it to his daughter and she loved them. And she's like, you know, five or six, like my grandson. But um, I got to tell you, I, I, I'm sorry, because I was a fan of the original trilogy. I grew up. Those movies were aimed at me and you. And they, they should have been more like, I'll give you a great example, two great examples. The Mandalorian and The Book of Boba Fett. Those mm -hmm. two shows have managed to capture the feel of the original trilogy mm -hmm. without... Retreading it or or pandering to kids or, you know, any anyone of any age can enjoy them. And it's you watch him. And it, of course, I can't think of his name. I just keep wanting to call him Happy Hogan because um, <laughs> he played Happy Hogan in Iron Man and the Avengers films. Um, not Kevin Feige. Uh, I can't I'm, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on it myself. I'll look it up real quick. I'll cut this part out. <laughs> <laughs> John Favreau. John Favreau. He created, John Favreau created The Mandalorian and The Book of Boba yes. Fett, and he is brilliant. He's one of us. He's like our age. He grew up 
with these movies and he captured the feel and did it correctly and it works and they all i think part of what helps is they both take place in the aftermath of the film return of the jedi yeah yeah well i have to clarify that too because uh you know, I was, you know, like I, I'm, a, you know, like I said, like I've always been saying, I'm a, you know, kid from the '90s. So, I, uh, when I first saw Star Wars, I actually did not see the original cuts. I saw the special edition first, unfortunately, uh. which, which as a kid, which as a kid, you know, being that was the first thing I saw of Star Wars, it really made no difference to me. But then when I later discovered that it was altered from um, the original, I searched out and I found VHS copies of the unaltered cuts and they still remain in my collection. And let me tell you, those cuts are magical. Yeah. <laughs> they should have, ne- they should have never been touched to oh, begin yeah. with. Yeah, exactly. I agree. And that was the only version I had available to show my grandson was the, the special editions. But I, I also, I too have the, uh, VHS versions. Um, yeah, in my collection. Yeah, so so when so whenever I mean, and I have the first six movies uh, before the uh, c- uh, sequel trilogy on Blu-ray. Anytime I go to rewatch those, I I I don't ever watch the Blu-rays. I always watch the VHS tapes. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I just I do. It's like, uh, and maybe it doesn't make sense because you know it's not it's not high def and all that, but you know, uh, right. it's the ol- it's the only way to see Star Wars. Yeah, I agree, hundred uh, percent. Um, you know, are given that the Mandalorian and Boba Fett are good shows, I am curious to see this new Obi-Wan series. Yeah. Um, but it again takes place around the time of episode 3, so I'm a little wary. I heard that uh what's his name's coming back to play Anakin/Darth Vader. Um, so I don't know how they're going to do that. I I what if it's John Favreau? He's probably going to do it well. He'll, he'll probably actually make me want to go back and watch the prequel trilogy <laughs> again. <laughs> if it's that oh, good. Oh, I, you know what? Only John Favreau is going to be able to do that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I mean, I feel like I feel like everything he touches is like gold, like it, like throughout his career. Oh, yeah. You know, a great, great filmmaker. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And you wouldn't expect it, you know, when you watch him playing happy hogan you know it's yeah like, <laughs> this goofball is making all these awesome things and like doing it well you know i mean if you look at his filmography i mean he did um uh he, um you know he did uh elf which is of course a christmas classic in that's my right mind. and he plays the doctor in that and he plays the doctor in that <laughs> exactly you know and um you know he did uh of course the uh, uh iron man so i mean you know he's he's great yeah yeah he's awesome so um one other thing i wanted to bring up um also that i'm looking forward to that's not star wars related but is from marvel through disney or i don't know it's disney marvel whatever it's uh the moon knight series which i believe is starting at the end of march so by the time your listeners hear this it will already be on um moon knight's always been one of my favorite marvel characters have you ever heard of him uh no i haven't oh He's cool. Instead of a black outfit, he's got a white outfit with a cape and a hood and sort of this white mask that covers his whole face except his eyes. And he's like this dude who's, gosh, it's been so long since I've read the comics. He's got this like split personality. And one of them is this like mercenary that ends up, uh, he ends up in like some kind of Egyptian tomb. And there's this Egyptian god named Khonshu 
that basically bestows these powers on him to become the Moon Knight and basically fight bad guys. And oh, okay. So it's this struggle, at least from the trailer that I've seen, it's a struggle between the main personality and then this other darker personality that goes out and fights crime at night. So it, it sounds wow. like it'll be something interesting and different than what we've seen so far. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. So have you been catching anything on streaming? You're still just watching um, shows that you're familiar with? Yeah, mostly just been watching stuff I'm familiar with. I mean, I think I talked about recently how, you know, I've been watching some documentaries about specific, uh, you know, film studios. Like I I mentioned watching uh, the documentary about the studio that produced uh, Terminator movies and, you know, Rambo. But... I recently also watched um, is a documentary called Electric Boogaloo, the wild and untold story of Canon of Canon Films. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, have you seen that documentary? No, I've heard about it though. I want to see it. It's really good. It's really good. I mean, it's funny. There's a lot of great stories about what a crazy studio it was at the time. Because I mean, you know, they were making they they were making. I think they said in the movie that they were making an upwards of like twenty five to thirty movies a year. When at the time. Studios were doing maybe eight to ten movies a year. I mean, it was crazy how much they were doing. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, and it's amazing when you think about it that this same studio gave us three movies in a row, all of which were absolutely god-awful, but so bad they're good. (laughs) Over the Top with Sylvester Stallone. The arm wrestling Yes, Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. And and He-Man Masters of the Universe with Dolph Lundgren. (laughs) I I'm gonna say I don't hate He Man. <laughs> it's it's fine, I guess. You yeah. Know. <laughs> and like, it's oh, got it's, a great soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. I'll give you that. I'll give you that. And I guess I guess the same could be said for uh, the other two. I mean, they're fine. They're not good. <laughs> Superman Four is not good in any way. <laughs> no, it's it's pretty terrible. <laughs> oh my! Is that the one? That's the one where he fights the other dude and he, like, pounds him into the dirt on the moon. Yes. Ugh. Well, and here's the funny thing about that. Um, the actor that played Nuclear Man, uh, yeah. <laughs> he, <right>. he's <laughs> – they hire him. The director's like, oh, we found him. We found Nuclear Man, and, and he's an ex-Chippendale dancer. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so funny. <laughs> I remember one time when I worked at Blockbuster Video – this guy comes in. He's like, um, "Do you have um, the Chippendales videos?" And I'm like, "Yeah, they're over <laughs> in, the, in the Disney section. You know, the with the Disney movies." You know, he's like, uh, "No, no, the the dancers." I'm like, "What?" And then this girl that worked there had to come up and help him. <laughs> so I didn't know what he was talking about. That's funny. <laughs> like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks, so due to scheduling, uh, once again, uh, we have another interview where I had to go solo. Uh, We managed to get a guest on the show that I've been a fan of for almost 20 years. He's got a show called The Retro Cocktail Hour, and he plays all kinds of great music that falls under the umbrella of lounge music, otherwise known as Space Age Pop. And we get into the nuances of that music and all the quasi-subcategories and just a lot of great music that people, if you're not hearing... If you're not listening to, you really should check it out. If you're only slightly familiar with this kind of music, lounge, uh, or if you don't know anything about it at all, sit back and listen to what you're missing out on. Class is in session. I have a bad feeling about this. How could I possibly be expected to handle school on a day like this? Food fight! Hey, you in my class? 
I am today. I think you should consider transferring to shock class. Whoa, whoa! Now, now, very few students are severely injured in shock class. Bueller. When you were in school. Bueller. Did you ever cut class? Bueller. Yeah, I guess I did. Sure, most kids cut classes. Good. Sign this. Um, he's sick. I get so lonely when I hear that third attendance bell oh. ring, and all my kids are not here. Seven years of college down the drain. Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, son. You lack discipline. As long as I'm here, there will be no grades or gold stars or demerits. We're gonna have recess all the time. Woo! Go play and have fun now. Okay, folks, we have an awesome guest on today who I've been a fan of for well over 15 years. He's a self-described radio rat, having started on the air in high school and still hasn't hung up his microphone. He's a DJ and producer who has produced quiz shows, radio dramas, concert broadcasts, art magazines, record shows, and more. In 1976, he was named Outstanding Student in Radio, TV, and Film at the University of North Texas. He's also won several awards, and if I read them all here, we'd have a nine-hour show. But some of the highlights are Best Comedy Show from the Mark Times Awards, Best Comedy Show from the New York Festivals, and Best Live Entertainment Show from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting Program Awards. He's the owner and producer of Right Between the Ears Productions, a company that for 35 years has produced award-winning sketch comedy shows and radio plays broadcast every week on Kansas Public Radio stations. He's also currently the program director for Kansas Public Radio. For 25 years, he's been the host of the insanely popular radio show, The Retro Cocktail Hour, in which he imparts his vast knowledge of lounge music and performers, as well as playing all kinds of... As our guest today puts it, music that's shaken, not stirred. This nationally broadcast show features swinging bachelor pad music from the 1950s and 60s, exotica, and incredibly strange music, and more. The show's anniversary celebration is coming up at the end of April here in 2022. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the show, direct from the underground martini bunker, Mr. Daryl Brogdon. Welcome, Daryl. Thank you, Roger. That introduction makes me exhausted yeah <laughs> awesome awesome so one thing we do with first-time guests on the show is we always like to start with where did you get your start and can you tell us about your journey to kpr radio and and the retro cocktail hour um i got started in radio because i knew somebody i was a 17 year old kid and the um the new general manager of the one and only radio station in town moved in next door to us so I got to know him, and uh, he gave a friend of mine and me jobs at the radio station. We had no experience. The pay was lousy. We worked weekends. But um, through that experience, we got to learn the business of radio. And this was in um, 1971. And it was a radio station that had a format that doesn't exist anymore. It was an MOR station, middle of the road, which means they played a little bit of everything. They played some jazz, they played some country, they played some big band music, uh, uh, crooners. I mean, it was just a kind of a hodgepodge all mixed together. And, you know, that's, that's where I got to uh, you know, learn about different kinds of music and how to put them together on the radio. Awesome. So that was my first job in radio and um, I never thought I would stay in radio. I was destined for a career as a cartoonist. And um, once you get the bug, it's hard to 
do anything else. And uh, it just, it, it was an exciting medium, is an exciting, exciting medium to work in. And even still today. So I, uh, I never became a cartoonist as a result. <laughs> so they, and you know, that's a, a long path to, uh, winding up at Kansas public radio. I went to work there. Gosh. Um, uh, one of my coworkers likes to say I began there in the Jurassic period. Um, <laughs> and when people ask me, how long have you worked here? I always say my standard answer is 75 years. Um, <laughs> but it's really more like, uh, I think I've, I've been there since 1982, so you do the math. Right. <laughs> I'm not good at math, so don't worry. <laughs> well, neither am I, so it could be 75 years for all I know. That's awesome. Well, good for you. And, and um, where did you come up with the concept of making the, the retro cocktail hour? Um, well, I, you know, as a kid, I always listened to this music, and uh, for me, I think the starting point was my mother uh, was a member of the Columbia Record Club back in the day. Mm -hmm. And that was a kind of a scammy <laughs> subscription <laughs> service where uh, every month they sent you a postcard or, or a flyer <clears throat> telling you these are the recordings that we can send you. And you had to send the card back saying, I don't want those records. And then they wouldn't send them. But if you fail to send the card back, which I think was the business plan for the Columbia Record Club, and everybody always forgot to send the card back, so they would always send you four or five albums every month. <laughs> and so that's how a lot of people acquired a small record collection that you didn't actually want. And so my mother, you know, sometimes forgot to send the card back. And so she acquired a, a, a collection of records, one of which was Martin Denny's Exotica. And the record rack at our house in those days sat under the television set. And the first album in the rack facing facing you as you watch TV was Martin Denny's Exotica. So whenever I'm watching TV, and I watch TV all the time as a kid, and as I'm watching TV, the Exotica girl, Sandy Warner, is staring out at me from under the television. <laughs> and I was just, I was just so... Um, kind of tranced with this record cover and the promise, you know, the promise of escape or sex or whatever it was that it promised. And so that kind of made me curious. And so I started listening to, to that kind of music and uh, always did. Never really paid much attention to what was popular. I, you know, I listened to what I, what I liked. And I always just thought I was weird. And so much later, uh, skip ahead to the mid 1990s, when all of a sudden everybody became entranced with this idea of what they call space age bachelor pad music. And there were a few reissues. That's that's when the Esquivel uh, reissues uh, started. Yep. Uh, RCA put out a, a three volume set of they call the history of space age pop and things like this were starting to happen and it was when i read an article in time or newsweek magazine about this phenomenon that i began to think hey maybe there's something here and you know in public radio uh, public radio stations are often uh, interested in bringing new listeners younger listeners to to public radio because the the demographic is you know the average age of most public radio listeners is mid forties. Right. Uh, some some older, depending on the format. 
So we're always interested in attracting younger listeners. And I saw this story in Time or Newsweek, wherever, and I thought, well, maybe this is a is an avenue that we can explore as a means of uh, attracting younger listeners because it was, you know, hipsters and kids who were sort of gravitating to this brief renaissance of what the record companies called space age bachelor pad music. So out of that came the retro cocktail hour. And Kansas Public Radio also has a significant amount of jazz programming and so much of what's on the retro cocktail hour is jazz as well. It was a nice fit with some of our existing programming as well. So that's how it began. It was an hour in the beginning, once a week, and um, eventually expanded to, to two hours, which is typically what it is today. Some stations uh, only carry one hour of it. Uh, others carry two. And at Kansas Public Radio, we carry the two hours with a two hour uh, from the archives on Sunday night. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I discovered... Um... This kind of music, probably in the early 2000s, you know, I was in my 30s, and I, I, I eventually stumbled across your show, and it, it I was hooked ever since, because, you know, I, I love how you just, you uh, introduce us to a wide variety of music in each episode, but you also have entertaining facts about whether it's the artist or the song itself, and I... You know, it's one of those shows that I liked to listen to in the background, so it would just sort of get pounded into my head because I'd, I'd go to a record store, which back around then they had pretty much all gone, except for, you know, now they're kind of back today. But when I'd go and look for this music, I'm like, oh, now what was that artist? What was that song? I could never remember, but by listening over and over again, it eventually sort of sank in, and I could then talk the talk, and I'm like, oh, yeah, Les Baxter, and, you know, I'm a huge Enoch Light fan now, and because of your show and it's awesome um i wanted to take a quick step back too you had mentioned the mor middle of the road radio stations sure i remember that too i mean growing yeah. up in the 70s i only had an am radio and it it a lot of the stations that would play uh current music would also play like easy listening and frank sinatra and big band stuff like that as well Along with, like, we never heard much country, in, in, at least growing up in Massachusetts, but like you had mentioned. Yeah. But I just th remember at one point, uh, probably about 20 years ago, going, wait a minute, why is this now a, a classic rock station and it only plays rock and roll music? Why aren't we hearing these other wide variety of songs anymore on the radio, you know? So things had just well, changed. Well, a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of things changed in radio, too, that contributed to that uh that change, I think, um, you know, multiple ownership became a thing in the seventies when, um, uh, the law, the, the, the laws governing who could own a radio station and how many, you know, there was, uh, some deregulation. So, you know, suddenly a lot of radio stations were owned by one group. And so a small number of people were, you know, programming many radio stations suddenly, and just like, and also just like happened in, in popular music, I always like to think that in the, in the 1950s, the record companies made music for everybody. Uh, you could find all sorts of different kinds of music, whether you were a jazz fan or opera, uh, polka music, whatever, there was a place to find it. And as the 50s became the 60s and the Beatles first Elvis and then especially the Beatles happened uh, it seems like you know in popular music that focus became 
much narrower. And maybe that has to do with the cost of production. I don't know. It's a, it's, I'm sure it's, it's, it's a complex situation. But suddenly all those types of music that had been available before started to disappear because they weren't big money makers. You know, I always, it always seems to me like the record companies felt a responsibility to their, to their customers to, you know, provide a lot of options. And those all kind of disappeared in the, started disappearing in the 60s. And as a format, MOR went away. You know, they had easy listening and beautiful music stations, of which I think there were still some, but certainly not as many as there were. And, you know, a lot of beautiful music stations were elevator music. That's another way to describe it. Right. You know, all disappeared. And many of us in radio worked at, at what we call combo stations, where there was an AM and an FM. And more than once, I would be at a station where you're hosting a show on the AM side, but on the FM side, you're in charge of the automation that runs the programming on that side. And those were often beautiful music stations. And in those days, all the music was on reel. This was, of course, way before digital. Yeah. And, you know, those stations were typically a giant rack of at least four 10-inch reel-to-reel tape recorders, all of which were synced with a very primitive... Uh, computer automation hmm. so you know one tape would play and then trip off the next one and the next one and you know that it was quite complicated and those those stations you know would subscribe to beautiful music services that would send you every month a stack of tapes with you know the latest music on so but those stations have have kind of disappeared as well yeah yeah and it's too bad you know i remember last year um my wife and i were you know playing some music in the background and it was i forget it was like dean martin or something and one of her younger sons walks into the room and he goes that sounds like christmas music because that's that's uh-huh. the only time the kids today hear old music is at christmas time <laughs> yeah well it's interesting because you know it, it, after doing the retro cocktail hour for 25 years uh, it seems like uh, the people i hear from the listeners i hear from sort of break down into two groups. They're uh, people who are old enough to uh, either have played it as young adults, you know, listened to it as young adults, or their parents did. Uh, that's on one side. And then the other side are much younger listeners who are maybe haven't been exposed to this kind of music and are really turned on by it. And that accounts for the fact that we're still able to do the show uh, there are new recordings being made uh, and things like that because there is an audience for it. And, you know, it's not easy to, to find this music. You have to really want it. You have to do some digging uh, to to find it. So it's really been interesting to talk back and forth with Retro Cocktail Hour listeners to get, you know, get at a sense of, you know, what generation they're part of. And, you know, this is the only show I've ever done where, retire i hear from retirees and kids with orange hair <laughs> green hair you know it's it's a it's an odd mix of of appeals and audiences but but a really exciting one too oh yeah that's awesome and it's just there's so much to it i mean there so all right i have a question i don't i don't think i've ever heard you use the term but do you consider lounge music a derogatory term or is that how is that used in conjunction with space age pop um, I use that term. I, I've never considered it um, 
a derogatory term. I mean, uh, sometimes you, you, you have to call it something. Um, uh, so I, I've never thought of it as derogatory. I don't use it a lot, and nor do I use Space Age Bachelor Pad, because basically I think those were, you know, marketing terms that were created in the 90s when the record companies were starting to reissue some of this stuff. And so they had to call it something. Right. And um, so that was sort of the tag they hung on it. And while I sometimes use those those terms, I, I don't use them a lot because I'm wary of the fact that I don't want to seem like, you know, this is just what's trendy now. You know, this is, you know, it's not that we've jumped on this trend that, you know, kicked up in the mid nineties and we're going to ride it until nobody cares anymore. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm passionate about this music. I think this is great music and deserves to be heard. And, um, so I, I guess if I avoid those terms, it's because I don't want to, I want to, I don't want it to be perceived as just something trendy we're doing until the next trend. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And it encompasses a lot of stuff. I mean, there's, there's, all, there's not only space age pop, there's, you know, exotica, modern electronica. You know, I think the big difference is, even though I do tend to, it, in some cases, like elevator music or the Muzak, I don't love it, but I love this kind of music. And I think it's more, the Muzak stuff is just sort of a watered down, whereas this stuff is really, it really pops when you listen to it, you know? Well, and you, if you look at, you know, you look at some of these albums, um, for example, um, I'm playing something on the show um, this week that was a kind of a percussion, what I call a percussion show off record, um, you know, the kind that were done primarily in the late 50s and early 60s when stereo was still kind of a new thing. And many of the record labels did all these uh, percussion records as a way to showcase the capability of, of stereo. So I'm, I'm playing this record and I'm looking at who the musicians are on it. And, you know, the guys like uh, the saxophonist Phil Woods, who is a legendary jazz player, uh, drummer Mel Lewis, another great name in jazz. You know, these guys were consummate musicians and yeah, maybe some of these records they appeared on, it was gas money or it was rent money or, you know, it was a gig. It was just a job, but they still were great musicians and they weren't phoning it in. So that's why those recordings today still kind of pop and have pop in a good way. I mean, not right. like crackle and pop, but yeah. <laughs> uh, they, they really have a lot. A, 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 they have a great sound and uh, I'm just have so much admiration for for those musicians who could do anything almost oh yeah yeah and i love it too and it's like there's just so much to it like i love organ music i love every time i'm in a goodwill or any place or even a record shop that's selling records i'll try and find organ albums that i don't have i actually took a quick peek through my own collection because it was a handful i wanted to see if i had uh, available you know easily and i dug out a couple i wanted to mention to you one is called Offbeat Percussion, starring Don Lamond and his orchestra. Yeah, that's that's on Command Records. Yes, yeah, that's yeah, a really Don good. Lamond appears. He appears on a lot of those uh, uh, Command Records. His his name pops up quite a bit. I mean, Command used a lot of the same musicians on all their records, and they were all great session guys. 
Oh, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I'm familiar with that record. Awesome. I found another one, too, that I wanted to ask you about. It's called Moods in Melody by Dick Delaney, the aristocrat of the Hammond organ. And it's actually signed by Dick on the cover. Do you know anything about him or this album? Um, not off the top of my head. Um, I, like you, have a lot of organ records, though. And um, I'm particularly fascinated with um, artists that nobody has ever heard of before yeah. who play, who play the Hammond organ. And uh, so there are quite a, anytime I see a record by somebody like that, somebody, you know, who was appearing at the Ember lounge in Des Moines and they did a record playing the Hammond organ. I always buy those records. Oh, yeah. uh, so I've got quite a, quite a few like that. And they're frequently autographed because those records were produced to sell at the gig. Oh, okay. So that's why frequently, uh, with artists that we're not really familiar with, that may be why. Because, uh, for example, I'm a big fan of uh, John Buzan, who was a Cuban-born uh, organist who had a trio, organ, saxophone, and percussion. And he got a record deal with Liberty Records, which was pretty big time. He only did two two albums for Liberty, but he went on in his career to uh, continue to work in clubs and he did half a dozen uh, self-produced albums with increasingly crummy cover art <laughs> um but because they were you know cheap to produce um but i've got like two or three of those autographed by john buzon again because those records weren't released by a label they were self-produced so the so john buzon could sell them at the club where he was performing, which is why frequently those records are also autographed. Oh, okay, now that makes a lot of sense. So when I found that a few years ago in like a Goodwill or something, and I'm like, wait a minute, is this worth something? It's autographed, you know. <laughs> well, it's worth something to me. I mean, that's those those kind of records. That's an unless the record's just completely trashed. That's a that's a instant purchase for me yeah yeah exactly i mean i remember the days when you know my mother would take me to the to the mall and they'd have the organ shop and the guy out in front with the uh the hammond organ and he's like you know playing away all kinds of crazy songs and i used to just sit there and listen the whole, for a long time yeah 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 well those those uh like i said i'm a big fan of of organ records too especially those performers we've never heard of before who did one album and that's it yeah and because uh, they've all got a story and uh, i guess part of the mission uh, of the retro cocktail hour is to ensure that those those folks aren't forgotten because to me the worst fate a performer or a musician uh, can can have the worst fate that can befall a musician is to be forgotten so uh, i i I'm devoted to to that mission on the Retro Cocktail Hour. Well, that's awesome. And that's exactly why I asked you to be on the show here, because on Then Is Now, that's what we try to do, is we try to talk to people who are helping to preserve this stuff, because I realized around the early 1990s that people were starting to get to forget pop culture things. They were starting to forget Frank Sinatra or who Fonzie is, for, you know, for gosh sake, or... You know, a lot of these things and musicians and artists and, and things that were so much of a part of our pop culture that carried over for quite a few decades now all of a sudden were falling by the wayside. So, um, yeah. you know, you're doing amazing work by, by continuing that. 
the two other quick albums I kind of quickly dug out of my collection before we started recording. I wanted to run by you. One is called Seven Melody Lane by Ken Griffin at the Wurlitzer Organ. <laughs> I love that one. <laughs> I'm familiar with I don't have that album, but I, I have a bunch of uh, Ken Griffin albums. And somebody once called Ken Griffin albums as uh, roller rink music. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, kind of, the kind of music you would hear at your local skating rink yes which i love that <laughs> yeah and then um i found one other one it's um that i thought was interesting because it seemed obscure that I, I should bring it up on the show it's called yesterday when i was young the electronic harmonica by alan black shackner with the new group <laughs> wow that's a new one to me too <laughs> sounds interesting though yeah yeah i'll send you pictures of these and uh at some point, cool. I, I can record off record, so if I can send you the, a copy of them, I will. Cool. So now, <clears throat> one other thing in doing my research for our show today, um, I came across swinging music. Now, I know what swing music is, obviously, um, from the 30s and 40s, and I read a brief thing that basically said swinging music was sort of an offshoot of that. Can you explain <clears throat> what that is? Swinging music is an offshoot of swing. Is that is that what you said? Yes. Yeah. Huh. I, 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 to me, they're one and the same. So unless there's some hidden meaning to swinging music, I don't know. Is that music? <laughs> is that music that they used to play in the suburbs when they were uh, doing a key exchange? I don't know. I'm not um, sure. Somebody, somebody once, somebody once described. Oh, what is it? Library music as uh, suburban wife swapper party jazz. Maybe that's. <laughs> Maybe that's swinging music. So, you know, I don't, I don't know the difference. To me, they're one and the same. And certainly the swing era is a found, sort of a foundation of much of what I play on the Retro Cocktail Hour, if only because many of the musicians who went on to do those type records uh, came out of the big band era. I mean, Les Baxter, for example, was, you know, was a reed player in the Freddie Slack big band in the 1940s. Right. So... Many of those guys came, even Martin Denny was part of a big band at one time, because that's, you know, those were the jobs. That was the the music that was popular in those days. So all those guys came out of that tradition. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Bobby Vinton. I mean, they all kind of pulled from that from the 30s and 40s, you know, the, the influence into the later music. I mean, even Burt Bacharach was doing this kind of stuff. Right. And it's funny, too, you, you mentioned, I just thought of uh, about the cover of the album. Like right now in my living room on display, I have um, the reissue of the um, the Girl in Gold Boots soundtrack, sort of, I have that on display. <laughs> and that's also yeah. one of those covers that catches you every so often and, you know, kind of strikes some wonder. And I remember as a kid, like the, the Herb Albert, some of the Herb Albert covers were, you know, like whipped cream and stuff. They were very um, provocative in the day. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I will confess to you that I once bought a Ventures album, a double album, solely for the cover. <laughs> because, I mean, I was a fan of the Ventures, but yeah. I didn't even look to see who they, who, what this album was. I just, there was a girl in a gold bikini on the cover, and I was <laughs> 13 years old. So, uh, and I still have that album. That's awesome. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's another aspect of this that <clears throat> that doesn't, I suppose translate too well on radio, but you know the album cover art from those years is just fantastic. Just so uh, you know, so much of the music 
on the retro cocktail hour is is its intent is to create an escape and the album covers many times do the same thing that is especially true with exotica music for example that that music is all about escape and the rec- and the record the album covers reflect that as well i mean you look at all the the the, the record the, the covers of the albums that Martin Denny was doing in the late 50s and early 60s with all those shots of Sandy Warner, the exotica girl, in, in various poses, sitting on the deck of a bamboo hut or waist deep in a mountain stream with her cleavage hanging out. And, uh, you know, those were all sort of seductive, provocative uh, fantasy covers. Yeah. So that was a great, great time uh, uh, in terms of the cover art, you know, and of course, you know, the, the LPs are 12 by 12, so they're frameable. They're big. You can hold them. You can put them on your wall. Nobody frames the cover of a CD. Right. <laughs> and that, you know, that's the thing we, we've talked about on the show. Uh, we've talked many times about uh, movies and movie art, newspaper ads, that sort of thing, and how, how the movie poster itself is sort of a lost art. Because now when you watch stuff on a streaming service, pretty much the poster that they're showing you are the faces of the people in the movie. There's no actual scene from the film anymore. And, you know, the same goes for exactly how you described vinyl album covers. You know, when they bumped down to CDs, okay, they were still putting art on them, but then when you opened it up, you needed a microscope to read the liner notes, you know? (laughs) Yeah, or a magnifying glass. Right, right. So, and it, that's I definitely the co- album cover art is is another lost art that I think is really a shame that hopefully will come back. I mean, now that, you know, uh, albums are starting to make a resurgence. I mean, you go into Walmart now or Target and there's a whole bunch of them, brand new ones there. So maybe we'll start to see a little yeah. bit more. I hope that trend continues. I know that the the I read somewhere one of the, the principal vinyl pressing plant here in the States was backed up months because of the demand so um yeah i think it's awesome so in terms of the different types of music under the umbrella of let's just say for example quote-unquote lounge music you've got exotica and i know juan esquivel was sort of um a leader in that can you explain to the audience what exactly exotica is and maybe how that's a little different from space age music or is it space age sure well exotica music is is uh music that is kind of uh, it's it's kind of an ersatz uh jazz and m- with a uh, a dollop of afro-cuban or polynesian rhythms uh it's not authentic folk music it's not authentic polynesian music it's sort of filtered through the prism of hollywood if if you would right. and uh you know the story is that a lot of uh, servicemen after World War II who were stationed in the South Pacific came home with a taste for Polynesia and hence the big sort of surge in interest in this type of music from about 1957 into the early early 60s and uh, I don't think of Esquivel so much as an exotica artist because he didn't his stuff certainly had a Latin flavor but his music to me always is about the arrangement you know, and it is about these wild stereo uh, arrangements frequently where, you know, he's leading two orchestras in two different studios at the same time for maximum stereo separation. 
I, I think of exotica music as Les Baxter, of course, Martin Denny, Arthur Lyman, Gene Rains, you know, guys like that. Many times, uh, you know, played by a small group. Les Baxter was one of the few exotica artists who had a, an orchestra at his disposal because he was under contract at Capitol Records. And Les has said in interviews that for a time there, he was pretty much allowed to do anything he wanted. Wow. And he, he was really uh, entranced with Afro-Cuban rhythms. And uh, in fact, I played uh, a bit of an interview with Les on the show recently. We did a show to commemorate his the 100th anniversary of his birth. And he talked about, he didn't mention which album this occurred on, but probably one of his early albums, maybe it was Ritual of the Savage, that, you know, you have to submit a list of, you know, what you're going to need orchestra-wise for this project and he had submitted to the music contractor his list and he wanted six drummers and he said the contractor came back to him and said why do you need six drummers because he was envisioning you know six drum sets you know traditional big band drum sets with right. six players and les laughed and said no no that we're doing an afro-cuban album and so there's lots of different types of percussion that comes into play so it's not just a drum kit you know, it's congas, it's uh, bongos, it's all kinds of different things. So I need six percussionists uh, <laughs> to to achieve that. And, you know, I get back to this notion of escape with uh, exotic music. I was talking to a good friend of mine who worked in uh, uh, the legendary Tiki Cat here in Kansas City, which is sadly uh, a victim, fell victim to the pandemic. Oh. But she always used to say, it's all about escape. That's what we promise in this tiki bar is to take you away from your your daily life and uh, give you the promise of sunny beaches and palm trees and uh, great drinks. And to a large extent, that's what the music is all about, too. So I, I think of exotic music as sort of the music of escape. Right, right. And so space age pop is more... Um... <laughs> Well, can you tell us? <laughs> well, those, you know what, you can, you can use those terms interchangeably. What, what I think of as exotica, somebody else might think of as a, a more broadly defined type of music. So if you're asking me for what I consider space age pop, um, it's got, that's kind of an umbrella word I, I like to use for, I mean, I always introduce the retro cocktail hour as, you know, the home of space age pop and incredibly strange music that kind of encompasses everything at some level but if you want a definition for what space age pop is it's it's the music of the era of the space race really you can chart it almost exactly you know from the mid 50s to the mid 60s mid possibly late 60s uh, when the space race was underway and everybody was sort of space focused you can see it in advertising, you can see it in music, movies, clothing. And so it's, it's a good sort of catch-all term and uh, you know, reflected in many of the covers of these albums. I mean, how many, I have a whole section in the Underground Martini Bunker that's just called Outer Space. And it's albums with an outer space theme or an outer space cover or both. Right, okay. So space age pop is, is, you know, that's what I think of as space age pop. And, and frequently it's, um, you know, for me, it's 
musicians and produce record producers making use of new technology like stereo right you know multi-tracking these were all tools that weren't available in 1950 and the in the beginning in the mid 50s accelerating into the late 60s late 50s early 60s you can see more and more albums that are uh, making use of these tools and all you have to do is read the liner notes of some of these albums you know they're very proud of the fact you know that, that's when you know record labels started putting all the technical information you know this was recorded at you know 15 ips on an ampex 770 and you know and 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 frequently there would be a studio diagram showing you how the microphones were placed wow. because it was you know it was the hi-fi you know the late 50s was kind of the hi-fi era yeah and uh, people were now sort of into this technology and wanted to know how how this record was done and and the labels were very proud of you know putting all this stuff on the on the back cover to tell you you know how we had you know recorded this on three different tracks you know today it could be 75 tracks but you know uh, i've got one album which is by a group called the polyphonics they only did one album and it's called sounds what sounds and it's basically three harmonica players and the liner notes go on in great detail about this machine they built created for this recording which basically sounds like a they took a an early tape deck and souped it up and added all kinds of gadgetry to it. But um, it allowed them to experiment with tape speeds, you know, play things slower, faster, uh, do some overdubbing and things like that. So the whole record's got kind of a echoey space age kind of sound as well. That's space age pop right there. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. I remember hearing that in your show. Um, and that also reminds me too, I think you've, haven't you played, um, Clara Reisenberg, was it Clara Reisenberg Rockmore, the the lady that did the theremin? Oh yeah, sure, yeah, yeah the ther theremin virtuoso. Yeah, she learned from Leon Theremin. In fact, he proposed to her several times. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he was yeah, he was quite infatuated with Clara Rockmore, and uh, she yeah, you know she was she was primarily a, a I think she was originally a violinist, and so the recordings that she did are, are kind of it's 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 i would i would call them classical music records you know she didn't uh dabble in what we think of as space age pop although she did play a theremin so there's that but um <laughs> you know for many years it was clara rockmore and samuel hoffman were the only two people who could play a theremin and then Paul tanner invented an electro theremin uh, in the early 60s which you can hear on uh, uh, the beach boys good vibrations that's paul tanner playing the electro theremin oh okay and then he invented that device for an album called Music for Heavenly Bodies, which uh, has got a wonderful cover. And uh, it's basically it's uh, big band music with a kind of space theme and featuring the electro theremin throughout. Nice. Nice. That's awesome. It's funny, too, when I think of this kind of music. Also, I, the image of the album that I have, um, which is a very famous one, the Enoch Light album, Spaced Out. I, oh, yeah. Know, that, to me, is like also just the, the epitome of space age music. <laughs> well, and every, everything that Enoch Light did, at, uh, particularly at Command Records, would kind of fall under that category. Because not only is it, is it kind of swinging 
lounge music, but it's, you know, there's a whole lot of it. That's a perfect example of what I was just talking about. You know, those mostly were gatefold albums. So you would open them up and there's very little about the musicians, although it did list the musicians, but there was a lot of information about, you know, the technical side of this, you know, what kind of microphones they use, what kind of placement, and they would describe frequently each tune, you know, how well the piccolos come in here on the right channel at the beginning of You're the Top, and then followed by a uh, three drum solo over here in the left channel, and then we'll switch them between the two channels and, and stuff like that. That was, uh, you know, that was the days of stereo action. There's a great, great series of, I believe, 19 albums that RCA Victor did, and every label did this when stereo was new. Uh, but they marketed it as stereo action, the sound your eyes can follow. <laughs> and you uh, you listen to these albums and you know the, the players just kind of move from left to right, mainly just because, hey, we can. Right. You know, <laughs> now we have stereo. Let's move the read section from left to right and back again. And you, you can tell when you listen to those albums how some of them they're just they're just using the effects for the effects sake just because we can and others escabel is a is a good uh, example he did two albums in the uh, stereo action series and for one of them literally did split the orchestra in half they were in two different studios connected by headphones that was done in order to maximize the stereo separation between those two. And that was the kind of stuff Esquivel was doing when he was at RCA Victor in the late 50s and early 60s. That's amazing. That's amazing. And that's stuff, too, that sort of leaked into the mainstream music. If you think about, like, say, for example, David Bowie, some of his songs, particularly from the 80s, um, you could just, if you're in the car, you could just play with the, the left and right channel and you can hear him harmonizing in different different levels on one side or the other, you know, harmonizing with himself. Yeah, and all that wizardry began with stereo action records, the command records line, and, you know, and these type of albums where they were beginning to experiment with the technology, which right. afforded them all kinds of opportunities that they didn't have before, back when everything was just dumb old monophonic sound. Right. And it's funny, too, like I, I try to tell the kids today, it's a, they don't have that, I would say most of the pop music that comes out, it all, first of all, it all sounds the same to me. And I don't think, I've tried to tell them there's no creativity involved. It's all beatbox and auto-tune. And, you know, literally what you've just described is pure creativity by saying, okay, now we have stereo. Let's see what we can do with it. Let's play with it just because we can. And now today it's all, you know, a bunch of suits trying to figure out how to make music and it, it doesn't work. Well, uh, the music industry is, like everything, is uh, going through enormous transition. And um, I mean, I'm with you. I, I try to keep my ears open to uh, to new things. And you know, there's there's a lot of artists I've played on the show that I mean, coming up this week, for example, there's a terrific band that I uh, came across recently called the Jazz Passengers. Uh, they've been described, somebody described them as if Frank Zappa had formed a jazz band, it would be the Jazz Passengers. Oh, that's awesome. So, for example, I'm playing a tune, a classic old tune called Don't You Go Way Mad. 
this week, featuring the jazz passengers with vocals by Deborah Harry and Elvis Costello. But it's great swinging stuff. It fits in perfectly with uh, what we do at the Retro Cocktail Hour. And, you know, the one aspect of doing the show that I find particularly exciting is how much new music is being created that I can play hmm. that sort of fit, fits into this category. There's a great new album out by uh, a, a performer named Molly Lewis, who uh, plays the, the ukulele, but she's also a terrific whistler. Oh, wow. And her, her new album, which is available on vinyl, is called um, uh, the, the Forgotten Edge. And she's got several tracks on there that are just full-on exotica music. And then there are bands like the Waitiki Seven, uh, Ixtawela in Sweden, the Stolen Idols in Florida, who are playing that sort of classic Les Baxter, Martin Denny, exotica music, but doing new things with it too. I mean, uh, what the Waitiki Seven, for example, uh, they're going to be doing this concert for us on April 30th, and they're bringing uh, new arrangements of, uh, because it's the 100th anniversary of the birth of Les Baxter, they're bringing a bunch of Les Baxter tunes that have probably never been performed in concert. And they're doing new arrangements of, of all of them. And uh, you know, one of the arrangers they work with is their saxophone player, Tim, Tim Mayer, who is a brilliant arranger as well as a reed player. Yeah. And so he's doing all new arrangements of these Les Baxter tunes. And to me, that's exciting because it's, you know, it's older music, but we're going to do, we're going to take it somewhere different perhaps. And um, so I'm really looking forward to seeing you know, what they're going to do with Les Baxter. And there, there are a lot of bands, a lot of musicians uh, who are doing this, this kind of music now. Uh, you know, they're not, maybe not signed to a major label, but, you know, they're not mining that particular vein anyway. Right. You know, people like the voodoo organist uh, is another one. They're, the radio science orchestra is, is one that I really like. You were talking about the theremin uh, earlier. The radio science orchestra, I think, has three theremin players. Uh, but a lot of what they do has one foot in the new and one foot in the old. It's a wonderful mix of new and old uh, that they're able to do and be true to both. So I always, it would be easy with a show like the Retro Cocktail Hour to turn it into a wax museum every week. And yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I don't want to someday sit up and realize all the music I've played in the last hour is all by dead people. <laughs> I, I want to also incorporate new things that are being done because this is a living music. And yeah. I want people who are just discovering this to know that it's not just you know, music that was recorded 50 years ago. It's right. also new things that are being done by young artists who are equally excited by this music. That's awesome, because that's one of the questions I was going to ask you. Are there new artists, you know, continuing this music on, which is great. I, I Just hearing that, uh, it makes me feel so good about things that, you know, we're not going to lose all this stuff. Because, um, you know, over the years, I've heard a lot of covers of this kind of music from, you know, Girl from Ipanema. I think you even played um, in your most recent show, The Music to Watch Girls By, um, an instrumental right. version. But I also love the Andy Williams version of that song, um, Summer Samba. Do you find that with this kind of music, there are more covers of these songs than in a, a, any other genre? 
Um, may it may be. Uh, I've never I've never really thought about it before, but um, there are there are a lot of covers. Uh, one thing I do on the show regularly, which I'm also doing on this week's show, is I'm really taken with uh, the tune "Light My Fire," and I love discovering bizarro versions of cover versions of of light my fire right and uh, you know my favorite is a mambo version done by edmundo ross and his and his orchestra so i love to find quiet village is another one quiet village is kind of the anthem of exotica music and it's been covered many t- i mean there's a disco version of quiet village for example <laughs> done by the the ritchie family in the 70s i think um, so I love finding those those weird cover versions. And sometimes, undeniably, it doesn't work. And, I mean, I, I think it's still fun to hear it. I mean, they somebody tried to do something and it didn't work. Right. Um, but it's, it's still fun to listen to. And some of them are, are really terrific. Um, you like organ players? Eddie Baxter yep. has a... a terrific album called uh it's either fantastic sounds or the follow-up album more fantastic sounds where he does a version of quiet village and he does all the bird calls on the organ oh that's awesome you know, typically if somebody is doing is imitating doing an impression of a bird or they're using actual recordings uh, of of tropical birds but he's doing it all on the organ so yeah, I I I play uh, I I play a fair amount of cover versions of songs on the Retro Cocktail Hour, and it's fun to um, find those kind of unlikely ones that make you think, "What were they thinking? Right. <laughs> Who is this for?" And, and that goes into you know some of the uh, incredibly strange music that you talked about. Like the first person that comes to mind is Ema Sumac, at least to me. <laughs> Yeah, I I'm a big fan of Ema Sumac, but it's a, kind of a problem in my house because my wife <laughs> it just drives it drives her up the wall whenever I'm playing Ema Sumac. But uh, I can see that uh, happening. I haven't done that yet. I'm, I'm a I'm a big Ema fan, uh, particularly of her Mambo record, and uh, perhaps that's because she was working with Billy May, who had a real flair for uh, for. Uh, afro-cuban music and the mambo but uh yeah she's she's wild in fact the um you know there's another uh, band contemporary band out in san diego called creepsotica that i really like and uh these guys perform i've seen them live once and they perform wearing luchador not luchador masks but uh like skull masks and a, and a fez topped off with a fez uh, through, throughout their show. And I just think they're awesome. They did an album with a singer whom I've interviewed on the show before named Rachel Deshawn, who is a, an operatic soprano. And they did four or five uh, classic Ema Sumac tunes with Rachel uh, recreating that, you know, that four octave range uh that that ema did and it was fun to talk to rachel about how she got how she prepared for this album Hmm. and she said she said i don't know man she said the band just sent me uh 
the recordings that Dima Sumac did of these tunes, and I just tried to recreate it, you know, because there were no lyrics as such written down that she could, you know, there wasn't a wasn't sheet music she could refer to. So she just had to listen to the originals and try to recreate it on her own. Wow. And at the same time, and at the same time, bring something of herself to it as well. That's awesome. That's so talent right there. A, you know? It's a, yeah, it's a really, really entertaining album. I highly recommend it. And what's the anything like, well, the, the group is called Creep Zotica and they, they have, uh, I think their first album is called Haunted Bossa Nova. And then the, the, um, the album with Rachel is, I think, simply called Creep Zotica. So they've got like three or four albums. I played them often on the show. I used to refer to them as my new favorite band of all time. Nice. <laughs> That's great. And, you know, it's funny. In, in Under this umbrella of incredibly strange music, I wouldn't call them incredibly strange. I would maybe say on the fringe. But I also like... Well, all right. I'll mention this one song first, which is kind of strange. It's the, it's that um, cha cha cha, the one two cha 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 Indian song that you've played. Oh one, yeah, two cha cha cha. And for some reason, I could never get that on my head. I heard it like what ten or fifteen years ago, <laughs> and every so often it pops in there. And I'll have to go onto YouTube and I can find the video of the lady singing it, and I'll play it. And like you said, I'll drive my wife crazy with it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that Bollywood music is insane. Yeah. It is. <laughs> It, yeah, that is ex incredibly strange music because uh, Bollywood music, at least the Bollywood music I've heard, they're, they're taking influences from a dozen different types of music and just smashing them all together. And somehow it works. Uh, you know, the, 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 my favorite Bollywood tune is John Pahachanho, which is sung by one of the great... Uh, playback singers in India, Mohammed Rafi, and it's in a movie uh, called Gumnam, which is uh, sort of an Agatha Christie uh, mystery about a group of people who are shanghaied in a plane and uh, are taken to a, a mansion out in the middle of nowhere, and then one by one, they start getting murdered. Hmm. And that film opens with John Pahachanho. Uh, being performed in a in a club and it is freaking awesome oh cool and uh, uh it's uh if you want to uh see some uh, bits of it there's a movie uh ghost world that came out um i don't know 10 15 years ago oh, okay and it opens with john pahit john Ho. and more recently there's a heineken commercial that uses it, which oh. is uh, really fun. A guy, if I remember this correctly, is a guy on a train like the Orient Express uh, moving through this train car and interacting with all sorts of different shady characters. And John Pahichanho is what's, is what's playing on the soundtrack. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> so, yeah, Bo Bollywood is a, is a genre unto itself. But because it... it features influences from Latin music and jazz and other things. I, uh, I like to play it occasionally. There's also a, a great band. I think they're in Brooklyn called Bombay Ricky. And they have a, a singer who is, has kind of an Ema Sumac voice. And, you know, they're doing original stuff. They're not so much doing covers. Uh, they're doing original stuff, but it's all kind of got that, that 
that flavor of, hmm. of Bollywood music, which is, you know, it's a great, it's great melting pot music because there's so many different types of influences intersecting in that stuff. And those, and the movies, the Bollywood movies are just crazy. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, they'll, they'll just, you know, like, like Gum Nam is, is, a, is essentially a murder mystery, but every 10 minutes or so they stop it for a big production number. Right. <laughs> So I love them. I love those movies. I saw one where there was like a, a fight sequence that went on for almost a half an hour. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I used to have a coworker who uh, who uh, was from India. And she walked in on me one day in my office, and I'm playing the John Pahajanho video on my computer, and she just rolled her eyes. And she said, we don't talk about those movies. <laughs> That's hilarious. I think she she really kind of looked down on them, but that is so funny. You know, that's like all this music, including the Indian stuff and whatever. It's just it's just pleasant and fun to listen to. But like I said, the, with this song in particular, but they're all so catchy and memorable. That's what I think is is like you said the the hundred percent that these guys were putting into all this music is what makes it like that. Yeah, I agree. Uh, for the most part just consummate artists um, working at the top of their game. And uh, yeah, that's, that's one of the real pleasures of, of digging this music. I always go back to uh, a guy like Plaz Johnson, who is still alive uh, and is uh, a saxophone player, reed player, who started out playing R&B and primitive rock and roll and eventually did some jazz and but he also was a working studio musician. So he appears on a lot of different recordings. And uh, two of my favorites are uh, two albums that Les Baxter made at Capitol in the 1950s. Actually, maybe more than two. But the two that really stick out are called uh, Jungle Jazz and African Jazz, both done in the late 1950s. And Plaz Johnson's got the lead tenor on that. Wow. And it's just awesome. Just amazing. Plaz Johnson went on to play the saxophone solo in the original recording of Henry Mancini's Pink Panther theme. Oh, okay. So, so he appears on a, a lot of recordings, but he's a, he's a great example of a guy who could do just about anything. That's awesome. He's still alive today, too. That's great. I don't know if he's still playing or not. He's probably... He's got to be 90 or older, but yeah, he, he, he has made a few recordings uh, in the last 15 years um, with a bass player named Joey Altruda out in California, but uh, I don't know how, how active he is uh, anymore, but right, right. great, great, great player and typical of those guys uh, who were uh, working session musicians uh, back in the day. Yeah. You know, everybody talks about the wrecking crew, you know, that great lineup of uh, session musicians out in los angeles um they appear many of those 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 players appear on many of these these albums that we're talking about yeah oh absolutely it's so they're so good and talented um one song uh, considering strange music i wanted to bring up and was that you've played a few times on the show Manamana. And I was wondering if you could tell our listeners the funny origin of that story. I mean, people know it probably from Sesame Street or the Muppets, whatever. Right. Um, but could you tell us the origin? <laughs> Which I it's love. by 
the, the, the tune is by Piero Umiliani, who was a, a brilliant uh, Italian composer who did hundreds of uh, Italian and European films during his career. And you're right, most of us know it uh, because we've seen the Muppets version of it. Uh, however, it was it's part of the soundtrack of a movie uh, for which Umiliani did the, did the music called Sweden, Heaven and Hell, which is a Mondo movie. And Mondo movies were these uh, fake documentaries that were made very popular in the 1960s, especially. But basically, they were just excuses to show bizarre sex practices, uh, <laughs> torture, uh, just weird weirdness of all kinds, all dressed up like documentaries. But what they really were was exploitation films. Right. So Sweden, Heaven and Hell is a perfect example of that. But it has a terrific score by by Umiliani. The whole score is great, but Mana Mana is really the the standout tune in that album. That's funny. <laughs> so every time So you never know you never know what you know what the origin, particularly on the retro cocktail hour, you never know uh, what the origin of uh, any tune, particularly stuff done from the sixties on. Uh, you never know where it came from. I I Play. There's a really strange album uh, called uh, The Exotic Sounds of Love, done by 101 Strings, and okay. you couldn't get you couldn't get more elevator music than 101 Strings. Oh, I love them. <laughs> and well, I do, I do too. However, this is one of those albums where you're like, who was this intended for? Because what they've done is taken. Uh, tunes previously recorded tunes from including several tunes by Les Baxter from other 101 strings album and they've overdubbed them with a an actress groaning pretty orgasmically <laughs> and you know you you think 101 strings their market is older listeners so you know when i play these i'm like was, you know, were my grandparents going to listen to this? <laughs> so oh, I like to I like, I like to pull that album out every once in a while and <laughs> play it. And whenever I do, I always get at least one complaint. Uh, or, or if I play, I mean, occasionally I've even played music from softcore porn films. Oh, sometimes, I mean, Les Baxter did music for a couple of films that are kind of softcore pornish. Um, and so I'll frequently, uh, you know, mention that fact right. and, you know, people get upset that I'm playing music from porn films. Come on. <laughs> it's not like they're singing. It's music. Anything. It's exactly. It's music. There's a band, there's a new band. I think they're European uh, or Japanese. I think they're Japanese. And the name of the band is Satanic Porno Cult Shop. <laughs> and the album of theirs that I have is an Exotica album. Now, Granted, they're doing new electronic takes on on exotica music, but it's still straight on exotica music. Right. But then there's that name, Satanic Porno Cult Shop. So the first time I played something by Satanic Porno Cult Shop, we got a complaint at the station from a from a lady who was upset that I was playing Satan's music <laughs> on the retro cocktail hour. So. Oh so I get I get I get some interesting calls, some interesting emails from people who kind of only half heard something and 
they're not sure what it was, but they don't like it, whatever it is. Right. So. Well, I've played Retro Cocktail Hour uh, backwards, and what it tells me is, you know, go to bed early, do your homework, brush your teeth. <laughs> so. Well, we try to embed a public service message in every program, Roger. Right. So I'm glad you picked. I'm glad you picked up on that. <laughs> um, one thing I. I I was looking at in my collection as well as I had a bunch of cha-cha and rumba and mamba and samba albums. Um, have Have you ever heard of a guy named Peter Shickley? Sure. PDQ Bach. Yes. Yeah, because he used to have a show back in the 90s. I had a job where I was up at four in the morning and um, he had a radio show called Shickley Mix and he would talk about all of these kind of... Um, the beats and you know how to d- determine if it's a rumba or a samba, you know, if, if it's... Um, if it's a tango, you know, it, it'll go, it'll make, make this kind of a beat. And I'm not going to do it because I don't remember. But I just remember that really sort of introduced me to that kind of music, which also falls into this category, correct? Very much so, yeah. I'm a big fan of, of uh, Latin music. And you're right. They're all, all those styles are all very distinctive and have a very distinctive beat. I don't know that I could uh, explain it either. Uh, but uh, you're absolutely right, yeah. It's just it's just fascinating. So if people ever can find that show, it's um it's really educational. Now I wanted to bring up well you had mentioned 101 Strings and also I I love them and Percy Faith, um and you played Percy Faith as well on the show, right? Yeah, especially his Latin records. He um he seems to have had a real affinity for uh, Latin Afro-Cuban music. So the Percy Faith records that I've that I have that I've heard. Uh, the ones that really sparkle are, are those. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm a big um, movie soundtrack fan, too. In fact, the very first um, album I ever owned, my parents bought me, was the soundtrack to Benji, and so, <laughs> <laughs> which to this day still runs through my head. But uh, so, so many times over the years, I've, I've had albums in my collection where it's like, you know, Ferrante and Teicher or Percy Faith or 101 Strings covering famous movie themes. And I just I just love that. They seem to catch um i don't know they seem to capture them very well in their own way yeah ferrante and Tiger has a great one of my favorite movie themes they did is uh, the theme from barbarella yes which i which i played on the show often they also have another album that i i picked it up for a buck it was still sealed uh, but a local record company was having a loading dock sale and everything was a buck hmm. and they had this album and i can't remember the name but it was something i I still have it i I play it periodically on the show um and this album had had to be from the 70s so we're later in their career and they have a tune on it called hong kong soul brother (laughs) which is which is like the theme for a bruce lee movie oh wow it is it's not a movie theme but it could have been in fact, when I first heard it, I thought, what movie is that from? Well, no, it's not from a movie. It was just done for this album. It's the only time they ever uh, recorded it. I, I don't know if anybody has ever covered it, but it's got, uh, you know, it's got some exotic elements, but also it's got that black exploitation flavor going too, because, you know, th- this was in the early 70s. Right. So those two things are kind of, you know, have a midair collision in this tune and it's it's great fun that's awesome wow i'll have to look that one up that's so funny what i wanted to bring up too was that um i had sent you before the show did you get a chance to look at the the picture i found 
from the newspaper? Yeah, yeah, that that's a new one on me. I had never heard of a Xavier Cougat dance school. Right. <laughs> so, folks, for those listening at home, I, I do a lot of newspaper research and stuff in terms of uh, movie ads and whatnot for things that relate to what we're talking about. And I just happened to be doing one on the creature from the Black Lagoon, and I, I scanned over to the right on the newspaper page. It was from the, uh, the El Paso Herald Post from March 17th, 1954. And as Daryl said, it's an ad for an Xavier Cougat dance school. <laughs> Which is great. I mean, do did a lot of these artists maybe do stuff like this on the side? Not that I'm aware of. Fred Astaire, uh, who is not really literally what I would think of as a space age pop artist had his own dance studio still does. I think, I think they're still in business. And Arthur Murray of course had the, the big chain of dance studios, which are still in existence. And there were a a whole series of albums that were done at Capitol records uh, under his name, each of which came with its own printed set of uh, dance steps because like the, each album was devoted to a different type of dance. Like Les Baxter did a Arthur Murray tango record. There's one of sambas, one of cha-chas, mambos. Uh, so, you know, those were all tied into the Arthur Murray dance studio. But I got to say, I'd never heard of a Xavier Cougat dance studio. <laughs> and in fact, after I looked at that, I Googled it and I, I came up with nothing. So wow. maybe there was only one in El Paso, Texas. I, I don't know. <laughs> Clearly, there's a story there. Exactly, exactly. Oh, man. And there's a lot of these things. I mean, you could do deep dives on every single one of these, you know, artists and songs and whatnot. Uh, but can you just tell us a little bit, since we brought him up, a little bit about Xavier Cougat? Xavier Cougat was uh, an interesting guy. Uh, he was originally a violin violinist, and he formed a rumba band in the 1930s. I always like to say that Xavier Cougat never met a musical trend that he couldn't jump on because he, he, well, and, and I mean that in the best possible way, because yeah. he, you know, originally had a rumba orchestra because rumbas were popular in the 1930s, but as tastes changed over the years, he adapted. So, so the, you know, his early recordings were rumba records, but if you listen to his stuff from the seventies, I mean, he's out there, man. He's uh, well, that, 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 uh, version of music to watch girls by that you just mentioned yeah. that I played uh, a week or two ago. That's Xavier Cougat. So he was, yep. uh, uh, or somebody was constantly inventing with that band and finding, you know, whatever, you know, what can, what new thing can we adapt for our sound? So he kept his recording career going for a number of years. Plus, he was married to Abby Lane and Charo, so that doesn't suck either. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> oh, man. So one of the things you mentioned, too, as of this recording on your most recent episode, um, you talked about how Strand was one of the worst record labels out there. Um, can you tell us about <laughs> that and maybe go over what some of the best and worst labels are? I am fascinated by the budget labels, as many, many listeners to the Retro Cocktail Hour are, because... Uh, in many cases, they were fly-by-nights uh, or a place for the mafia to launder money. Right. Or, you know, there's, there's all kinds of crazy stories about them. Some were better than others. Um, Crown Records is sort of the king of the budget labels. It was uh, uh, owned by the Bihari brothers, who uh, owned a number of labels over the years. All of them kind of sketchy. 
and you know the hallmark of the budget label is that uh, they're pressed on really cheap vinyl. They used to say, <laughs> you know, with some of the some of these records, you could still see the newsprint. You could still read the newspaper story from the newspapers they had dumped into the vinyl mix. <laughs> I don't. I've I've, ne- I've never run into any that were that bad. Uh, but the vinyl is always not the best. So, you know, I've, I've bought sealed copies of Crown Records from the 60s that hissed immediately on the turntable. <laughs> uh, Strand was uh, a New York, I think a New York-based uh, budget label that had a reputation for not paying their artists or, wow. you know, acquiring recordings that an artist made years before and then releasing them <laughs> without Telling the artist and obviously without paying the artist. And many times, you know, what budget labels did was pick up cheap European recordings and then slap a different name on them. And, uh, you know, they were big on reissuing the same albums over and over again, just with a different name. However, one thing that proves the old saying that even a stop clock is right twice a day. Yeah. Occasionally, great recordings uh, managed to find the light of day on one of these labels, Strand Records, for example. One of the greatest of all Exotica records is Fillmore's Polynesian Paradise, which was released on Strand over at Crown Records, Jazz Heat Bongo Beat, which is a terrific Afro-Cuban album featuring some terrific players like Buddy Collette and guitarist Tommy Tedesco. That came out on Crown Records. It probably came and went, and there's no question that it was reissued a number of times under a different title, credited to different performers, released over and over again. You know, so there's a lot of bait and switch that goes on um, with the budget labels. You'll be buying a record you think is one thing, but it turn, turns out to be another. Robert Drasnan's fa- Robert Drasnan's famous um, Exotica record, Voodoo, also known as Exotic Percussion, uh, was released on the Tops record label uh it's a brilliant album but clearly what tops was doing was just jumping on the martin denny bandwagon because this is it was recorded in 59 or 60 when martin denny was red hot so they saw you know a trend they got some musicians together robert dresden wrote original material for the album and it's it's brilliant it's a wonderful album it probably came out in disappeared without the trace and was forgotten until crown reissued it again and again and again <laughs> under different under different titles right so uh the budget labels uh that book has yet to be written but there are some colorful stories out there uh somebody's made a documentary about crown records which i haven't been able to see yet but uh, i'm looking forward to to seeing that someday uh, but they all are you know just <laughs> atrocious in some respects, but um, many of them did manage to pr- probably accidentally release some good music. <laughs> That's hilarious. And it's funny because, you know, again, another parallel to the film industry, because especially in the 70s, you had a lot of these cheapo distributors that would bring a film over from Europe. They maybe would change things or change the dubbing or add in footage. And then if the film didn't work in the theater, they take it. Re- retitle it and then reissue it. <laughs> I wonder yeah, how many times same. someone went to see a movie and they're like, wait a minute, I saw this already. <laughs> well, and, and, you know, I've bought 
when I was just starting to go crazy collecting these records, you know, I would, uh, uh, Jazz Heat Bongo Pete is one of my favorite albums done for Crown Records in 1960. Great yeah. bongo record, Afro-Cuban, Latin rhythms. Later, I find this album on Crown called Crazy Bongo by <laughs> Haji Baba, by a player called Haji Baba. <laughs> and I thought, I don't have this. So I bought it. Well, it's Jazz Heat Bongo Beat. They just retitled it, credited it to a fictional artist, and changed all the track titles. So to look <laughs> at it, you're not... You're not going to know you're buying the same record again. and But I've kept it because it's kind of, I like, I, I kind of dig that they were audacious enough to, to do that kind of thing. That's but that funny. was that was not uncommon uh, with budget labels, which makes, you know, uh, compiling a complete disc, discography a real challenge because you don't know, you, you can never really trust what's the liner notes to tell you anything right. on a budget label. <laughs> wow. Now, what about some of these um, gimmicks that they use? Like, again, I reference this because I happened to listen to it yesterday, your most recent episode, but you mentioned um, that an album was done in Vitaphonic stereo, which you described as basically well, <laughs> stereo. <laughs> yeah. Did, did they yeah. do a lot of these gimmicks to sell records? Oh, you bet. You bet. And, and, and uh, more than that, when stereo happened in i think it was 1957 you know most labels had this big inventory of existing recordings but they were in mono well now they saw the writing on the wall and pretty soon everybody's going to want stereo so every label also invented some kind of fake stereo for example <laughs> at capital at capital records they called it duophonic stereo <laughs> well it's not stereo at all but basically you know they've they've done some some uh, technical mumbo jumbo wizardry to uh, reprocess the recording so it sort of sounds like stereo, but it's not really stereo. Hmm. Uh, they all they all did this, and and even the ones that were, you know, and and they all eventually started issuing uh, stereo records. For a while, there would be a stereo and a mono issue of the same album uh, for folks who hadn't made the step up to uh, to a stereo player, but they would frequently brand it their brand of stereo, like at RCA, most famously, I guess, was Living Stereo. Uh, Warner Brothers called it Vitophonic Stereo. Uh, United Artists called it Wall-to-Wall -wall Stereo. Basically, I think it's just stereo, but right. you know, that, was the, that, was, that was the brand they were trying to sell you. And uh, the stereo action albums that RCA Victor did in the early 1960s. There are 19 of them in all. And, they, and the deal was that if you bought an RCA Victor stereo phonograph, they would throw in one free stereo action album. So I, I always, so I always say, you know, you buy 19 stereos, you can collect the whole set. Right. <laughs> That's hilarious. But oh, that was, man. that was the gimmick. That's so funny. Aye, aye, aye. So there's, there's uh, so much more we could go into, but we're going to try and wrap it up here soon. Um, uh, so in terms of the Retro Cocktail Hour, um, how have you been moving into like modern streaming to reach a wider audience? Well, we started streaming as soon as it was viable to do. So we've been streaming for probably, the show's been on the air 25 years. We were probably streaming within the first five years uh, of the show being on. 
and that's really been a, a key for for the show and and is why so many people discovered it because it was available as something other than a radio broadcast so yeah we've been we've been out um in the streaming world almost from the beginning and i get asked the question all the time um uh, when can you make this available as a podcast <laughs> and there's a big difference between streaming on demand and podcasting now essentially they are the same in that you're hearing the content on your device but if if it's a podcast it's being saved to your device an on-demand stream is not something that you can technically save to your device although many people many retro cocktail hour listeners that i've talked to have contrived a means to do that <laughs> but we're not you know we're not allowed to make it easy for you to to do that because with a podcast there particularly with a mu with a music podcast there are all sorts of legal and rights issues that have to be dealt with right you know if you if you want to do an on-demand stream of music the rights are pretty simple uh, but once you're podcasting and somebody is saving that to a smartphone, an iPod, a PC, whatever, once they start doing that, everything changes and you have to uh, acquire the rights. So you have to license the rights from the composer, the performers, the record company, the publisher, everybody. Right. And it's ruinously expensive to for any one individual or one organization to do that. So uh, I get asked this question all the time and that's my, my answer. We, you know, when it's legal for us to do a podcast, we'll do one. And at the same time, I know there are many other hosts of shows like mine who are podcasting and I'm here to tell you they're probably doing it illegally. And hmm. I read recently of a, um, a poker podcast that was using music, uh, in the podcast, having not cleared the rights, and apparently they're being made an example of, and they're being sued, and they're being fined per violation. So every time, if somebody has counted up a number of times, they've used uh, copyrighted music in their podcast, and I think the fine came to seven million dollars. Wow! So um, it's I, I think the folks who are out there doing that, who are out podcasting music illegally uh, are taking a huge risk and uh, Kansas Public Radio is licensed to the University of Kansas and we're not prepared to assume those kind of risks right that makes so sense. Uh, so I I feel like once it's legal for us to do it we'll be right there but yeah. until that day uh, all we're all we're able to provide legally is an on-demand stream having said that I know many people have contrived all sorts of ways to record this, the on-demand stream or the live stream when right. the show is broadcast live so that they have a recording of it. But, you know, we have nothing to do with that. So that's not something we uh, are held responsible for. So exactly. So exactly. We're yeah. not, we don't worry about it. I've run into the similar situation in earlier episodes of the show where, like, I play a movie trailer based on the movie that we're talking about. And then I, I put my podcast also on YouTube and YouTube basically says, oh, well, um, this is you can't play this in certain countries because this is copyrighted music. I was like, oh, crap. I had no idea. So I've had to change yeah. things around, you know. 
It's a very it's a very murky world, and um, it's hard to um, get a definitive answer sometimes about, you know, is this legal for me to do or not? But we're fortunate as a public radio station that we work with the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, who actually negotiates our streaming license on our behalf. Uh, so that takes a, a big burden of responsibility off our shoulders. Um, I also work with Mixcloud, which has very robust licensing in place. SoundCloud, which is sort of the other uh, big streaming platform for musicians and producers, does not have similar licensing in place. So uh, we started out with putting the show on SoundCloud and started to get into issues where they would find shows uh, that had... Uh, music that they were not licensed to stream so they wouldn't allow us to stream the show there mixcloud has a very robust licensing situation so we don't have to worry about that with them but it's it's you almost need a lawyer on staff to to deal with these kind of questions it's a very very murky world right right so i wanted to ask about the what you vision the future of space age music is going to be now you kind of touched upon earlier about how there are a ton of new artists that are doing it do you think it's going to continue i hope so and i hope radio shows like the retro cocktail hour uh, whether they're on the radio or on the web uh, will continue to to be done to continue to be broadcast at stations and online all over the world because that's that's how uh, a lot of the interest uh, has been uh, generated for this music and i can't tell you the number of times i hear from musicians who listen to the retro cocktail hour or shows like it and are inspired to create music of their own i've played music many times by artists on the show who came to that music um, because of the show there are a, a couple of bands three there's three bands in lawrence kansas alone one is a surf band one is a lounge exotica band and uh, the other is kind of a american popular song and lounge uh band uh which kind of grew out of you know the interest that shows like the retro cocktail hour create so i i think as long as there's a place to listen to it that musicians will continue to to gravitate to it because it's a it, it's such an exciting kind of music and affords, I would think, musicians and composers uh, lots of possibilities. Awesome. Awesome. And can you tell us about uh, Retro, I'm sorry, Cinema Agogo? <laughs> That's uh, something we kind of spun off of the Retro Cocktail Hour because a lot of the music uh, featured on the show is from movies, sometimes incredibly strange movies. And <laughs> I can't remember what the conversation was because we've been doing this for a dozen years now. But uh, I came up with this idea that why don't we do uh, some screenings of these some of these crazy movies? Because clearly, I'm not the only one who has an interest in kind of these these bizarro types of music and movies. So right. let's see what happens. So we started uh, we started running. Uh, I think our first one was me uh, Mexican luchador movies, and uh, we've done horror movies, exploitation films, teenage juvenile delinquent movies, <laughs> outer space themes. Every every 
show has kind of a theme. And uh, during the pandemic, we've taken it virtual and we've done many more of them than we were doing uh, previously. And we've got people, you know, joining us to watch those movies from all over the country, which, you know, for the in-person screenings, that's not really an easy option for people who don't live here. Right. But we've, we've started now slowly going back to doing in-person screenings. And our next one is uh, April 1st. That's going to be a virtual cinema ogogo. All the details at retrococktail.org. Um, but we're going to also do uh, start doing in-person screenings again in uh, the following month, in the middle of May. So it's they're really a lot of fun. It's like, particularly when you're all in the theater together, it's like watching Mystery Science Theater with 300 of your closest friends because people awesome. yelling things back at the screen. And <laughs> and uh, my favorite moment at a cinema go-go was we were screening Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. And there's a scene there's a scene in the movie where the 50-Foot Woman, who's been contaminated by alien radiation and has started to grow to gigantic size, and she's chained up in her bedroom, and her ne'er-do-well husband, Harry, has been, who is just after her money and is playing around on the side, her husband, Harry, is, you know, they're having to give her <clears throat> an injection of some powerful sedative to keep her calm while they figure out what to do with her. And there's a scene where Harry is standing there, and there's this giant prop hand in front of him, and he's standing there with a hypodermic needle in his in his hand and looking at the jar of sedative. He looks at the hand, looks back at the sedative. You know what he's thinking. And so we're running this movie, and that scene plays. And somebody in the, in the back of the theater says, Don't do it, Harry! <laughs> <laughs> but that's pretty typical of uh, Cinema Gogo. So it's, a, it's, you know, it's another great community that... Uh, is so so fun to be a part of. So um, we're going to continue doing the virtual cinema go-go's, uh, even though we're going to go back to in-person screenings in the very near future. We're going to continue to do the virtual events too. That's awesome. That's awesome. One of these days when you're doing it live, I'm going to see if I can get out there. I mean, if the wife and I can get out there and, and attend one of these because it just sounds like so much fun. Oh yeah, it is. And Liberty Hall is a great place for the screening. It's a an old turn-of-the-century opera house that's been restored. Nice. And uh, they have great popcorn. Awesome. Awesome. So briefly, what other cool programming do you have on a Kansas Public Radio? Well, we're a pretty, pretty typical public radio station. We have the NPR News shows, Morning Edition, All Things Considered. We play a lot of classical music. Um, and my show, which... One of <laughs> one of our classical listeners refers to as that damn martini music. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, you know, I just want to say for listeners out there who would like to start getting into lounge music, space age music, exotica, whatever you want to call it, um, if you just want to sample it, I absolutely recommend that the first place you should go would be the Retro Cocktail Hour because Daryl here is going to expose you to a wide variety of, of music and facts about the songs and artists in an entertaining way. And, you know, then you can sort of dig into each artist that you heard and, and maybe, you know, if you liked one, you maybe listen to more. And ultimately, it's a rabbit hole from which you'll probably never return. And, and that's a good thing. <laughs> I would agree. So, Daryl, man, it's been awesome having you on the show. I have a lot more stuff that I was going to ask, but we could go on for hours. So we're going to have to have you back again sometime. I'd love that. 
Awesome. And thanks for having me. Thanks for having me, Roger. Really appreciate it. It's been, been, been a treat. No problem. No problem. And before you go, can you just tell our listeners, uh, I know you mentioned it earlier, but where to find you online and, and the show? Retrococktail.org is our website. You can stream the show right there. You can uh, join our mailing list. We have a CD giveaway always running at the website. So uh, you can not, not only listen to some Space Age Pop, but you can win yourself a, a CD of it as well. Awesome. Retrococktail.org. Awesome. And I forgot to ask real quick, and this is kind of important, your 25th anniversary is coming up. So do you want to describe what's oh, going yeah. to happen for that? Yeah, technically our 25th anniversary was last year, but uh, it unfortunately was in the middle of a pandemic. So we didn't get to celebrate it last year. So we're going to do that on April 30th at Liberty Hall in Lawrence, Kansas. We're going to have the uh, internationally acclaimed uh, White Tiki 7, one of the foremost purveyors of contemporary exotica in the world. Uh, they're going to be, uh, we've had them here once before, and we're having them back on April 30th. They're going to do uh, a show at Liberty Hall with a lot of new arrangements of uh, a great deal of music by Les Baxter. Nice. Uh, we're going to have a co cocktail reception the night before across the street at the Eldridge Hotel. And then on uh, Sunday, May 1st, we're taking the show on the road to Pittsburgh, Kansas, and the Bicknell Family Center for the Arts in Pittsburgh, Kansas, for another concert by the Waitiki Seven. So it's a full weekend of activities, and we've got people flying in from all over the country to to attend the concert. So everyone's invited, and tickets are going fast. That's amazing. That's amazing. And they can get the tickets on RetroCocktail.org, correct? You can indeed. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks, Daryl. You know, you have an open invitation to come back on the show anytime you want. We talk about more music. You bet. Anytime, Roger. Thank you so much. Excellent. Take care. So, Chris, what do you think of this interview? Because I am a huge fan of Daryl Brogdon. So I hadn't heard of him, uh, and, I haven't, and I haven't really listened to uh, uh, the music before, but I really enjoyed hearing him talk. It reminded me very much of when we interviewed Gary James. And, uh, you know, hearing about his retro stations, I think it's really cool hearing their perspectives on music, why they chose this music. So, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. It was just fun to get into the different aspects. I, now, I'll give you one example because I, I know you've at least heard some, uh, some of the types of music that he plays. Um, the Austin Powers theme. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's considered um, in, in okay. that category. Okay. Um, there's so many, like the, um, I don't know if you recall the, the theme from Stacy Keach. Um, mm, no. Oh, it's, uh, oh, well, well, <laughs> Daryl, Daryl's going to kill me cause I can't remember the name of it. If he's <laughs> listening right now, he's screaming the name. Of it. Oh, it's, um, Harlem Nocturne. Okay. Uh, is the name of it. If you, if you hear it, you'll go, oh, oh, I've heard that before. So if you listen to his show, you'll, you'll start to recognize things here and there. I mean, there's even like. There's a series of CDs out there called Ultra Lounge, and yeah. there's all there's like Christmas albums in there, and then there's like regular ones, and one of them is um, TV and movie themes, I, th I think yep. is the title of it, and it's uh -huh. it's got one song that's the Dick Van Dyke theme that goes into an instrumental of the Alvin and the Chipmunks show theme. And oh, it's, cool. It's brilliant, and it's so good, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then it goes into the... Into the um, of course, now I can't think of how the chipmunks theme go, and I probably people don't want to hear me do it anyways. But <laughs> yeah, so you know, people, you really should check out the Retro Cocktail Hour. Uh, the links are in the show notes. 
and um, you know, send us your feedback. You know, let us know what you thought about this, and if, if we've turned you on to lounge music and, and uh, space age pop and exotica, all the stuff that we talked about. And if you want to, you can send your feedback to thenisnow42 at gmail.com. You can also join in the conversation at our Facebook Then Is Now podcast group. That's right. And Then Is Now podcast is a proud member of the Dorkening Podcast Network. So be sure to check out the other great shows there at the Network.com. And you can find me at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stories in Motion. And you can also go to my website, which is storiesmotion.com. You can also visit our website at havenpodcast.com where you'll find our sister show, The East Meets the West, in which we discuss Shaw Brothers films and Spaghetti Western movies. And while you're there, click on the Patreon and Public links to get some exclusive stuff. Excellent, excellent. And Then Is Now is on YouTube, so please visit youtube.com slash user slash UncleDeath1 to get the latest videos as well as other fun videos. Please subscribe to our YouTube page and also share the video versions of our podcast with your friends and get them to subscribe as well. And don't forget to go wherever you download your podcast from. And if you like the show, please leave us five-star reviews so that more listeners can find us. The more good reviews that we get, the more we go up their recommendations list. You can find us on all the podcasting apps, especially the big three, iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Class dismissed. The Miss Now podcast is intended for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. Sounds, music, and clips played during this podcast are the property of their copyright holders. All original content is copyright Jupiter Media. shows like the one you just heard check out the dorkening podcast network at the dorkening.com